Okay, so uh, welcome, welcome everyone to uh, Darisha's spring program. And this is the fifth class of this session on the halachic process, a brief history with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. And with that, I'll turn this to Rabbi Ziering. Okay, thank you, Evie. Um, okay, so it's good to see everyone again. Uh, we have a lot to uh, we have a lot to cover. Um, and uh, as as usual, I'm I'm glad for all the people who followed up during the week with emails, and we can keep we can keep doing this. It makes it uh, I, I do enjoy the continuing conversation. Um, okay, so where we where we left off last week was explaining the factors that led in the 16th century to the the age of codes, um, to the rise of the codification in Shulchan Aruch and Ramosha Israelis the Rama in his comments, and then in the the following century or so really the uh, reorganization of halachic writing as, uh, as commentaries around the, uh, the Shulchan Aruch. Um, before we turn to the new sources, I just wanted to spend uh, a few minutes on, uh, on the end of last week's sheet to begin tracing the history from uh, the 16th century uh, as we continue in, uh, in time. So let me quickly share, um, share those sources. Um, and I will, I'll try to spend very little time on, on the ones from last week, but just to, to touch on them. So um, where we left off was this was the importance of Shulchan Aruch and, and the methodologies that were used and the importance of, of Minhag. Um, but the question then became, why is it, um, how did people justify to themselves the importance of Shulchan Aruch in the, in the ensuing years? Um, and what you basically see are, are three models. Um, the first, and, and this, as I mentioned at the end last week, I think after class finished, those who stuck around for, for questions, um, the same models that we saw essentially when we dealt with the question of why um, we accept the Talmud and what the Talmud Bavli. Uh, one model um, was simply that we accepted Shulchan Aruch because we did. And the acceptance of the Jewish people has force. So, for example, you see that in the Urim Vitumim of Rav and Eipschitz, writing in the 18th century in Germany. The, we've accepted um, to follow what it says in Shulchan Aruch, at least for the people who follow Rabbi Yosef Karo and the Ramah, for those who follow Ramosha Israelis, and specifically their formulations in the shorter version of Shulchan Aruch, rather than the encyclopedic versions found in the Beit Yosef and the Darke Moshe. So that's the first model, is this notion of acceptance. Um, the second model, which he hints at, um, and it's unclear exactly how these, these interact, um, is that there was a belief that God had, uh, had granted uh, special wisdom, Ruach HaKodesh, or divine spirit, whatever you want to say, to Rabbi Yosef Karo and Moshe Israelis writing in this period. And therefore, their words, for some reason, reflect um, the truth in a way that maybe another authority would not. Uh, and that's his second argument here. Uledati, in my opinion, ain't safek, there's no doubt Everything came from God, al-Yadam, 
Because any question anyone has ever asked on Shulchan Aruch, someone has come up with a clever answer. So model one is we accepted it. Model two is we accepted it because they, for some reason, are truer than other sources. And I gave you yet another example here in 15 of those who explicitly claim that the reason we follow Shulchan Aruch is because they had Ruach HaKodesh, they had a divine spirit uh, when they wrote. Um, the third model, and this is something that we'll discuss later, but I'll just throw it out now, from the Rajba, writing not about, not about Shulchan Aruch, but writing about what, those people who followed the Rambam, but later people would evoke this for Shulchan Aruch, is... Um, essentially an expansion of what becomes known as the Maradatra principle. Right? The Gemara, and again, we'll come to this later uh, later today, or maybe next week, I, I've, weeks five and six, will, the topics will overlap. Um, but in the Gemara, there is value to your local authority, literally the Maradatra, the master of the place. And the Rajva introduces a notion that we can expand that uh, beyond your actual rabbi to an authority that you accept. We'll come back to that model a little bit later, uh, but those are basically the three models that were presented to explain why um, the Shulchan Aruch became so accepted. Um, though, as we noted at the end of last week, um, it's not totally clear how true this is um, and what it means accepted and who accepted it. Um, so just to show you an example, on the one hand, um, writing in the 16th century, you do have this argument by the Shalah, um, that the minag, the custom outside of Israel, that the Ramah's authority already extended over Poland and Germany and basically much of, of, uh, of Europe. Um, but there were other people. And if you jump here to Rebbe Chesel Katz and Ellenbogen and Knesset Yecheskel writing in the 17th and 18th century, uh, he also thinks that the custom was to accept the Ramah. But he writes that the minag was, that we accepted it here in Poland. Um, the implication being Poland, but maybe not Germany, maybe not France, maybe not Russia, um, well, probably Russia also, but maybe not um, all of, of Europe. Um, so even as much as people are talking about the acceptance of Shulchan Aruch and Ramah and Ramosh Israelis, it's not clear where they're accepting it. Uh, and different places seem to have different uh, feelings about this. Um, and the second point um, is that um, even people who pay lip service to this notion that we always accept Shulchan Aruch and Ramah, it's not clear that they always do. So for example, Rebbe Cheskalanda in several places writes things like, Nishar Moshe Emet Toshel Rama Emet, borrowing on the phrase in the, the that we say about Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moshe Emet Vitorato Emet, that Moshe's Torah is true. Um, people in Ashkenaz were starting to say that about Ramosha Israelis, the Rama, that his his whatever he says is is true. Um, and in, uh, here in eighteen he says, Amnam Khalila Lanula wrote Kolkach Binakel Neged Torat Moshe. God forbid that we should ever rule against the Ramah. On the other hand, you discover, and I won't read this inside, but in other cases, he just didn't rule like the Ramah. So for example, here in number 22, the Ramah ruled 
that you should not let a single person be a sander, the person who holds the baby at a Brit Milah for more than one Brit, um, because the being a sandak is uh, metaphysically like being a mizbeach, being an altar. Um, and um, when it came to the ketoret, the incense, which was super important and had all types of blessings associated with it, we only let a priest, a kohen, have that privilege once in their life. And here, after noting the Ramah records this minog, he says, but that's not the custom. So as much as they're, they're, the post are giving lip service to this notion that we always accept Shulchan and Ramah, uh, it's not always true. Um, Mo's Kahana here, and I won't read it inside, argues um, that part of the reason that despite the fact that it's not totally true, as the generations go on, it seems to be that um, more and more poskim formalize their acceptance of the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch seems to be part of um, identities that are formed in, uh, in opposition. So as the Hasidim come onto the, the stage and start to have new customs, so non-Hasidic Ashkenazi Jews want some want an identity to uh, coalesce around. So they double down on this notion that we follow the Ramah uh, so that they can explain why they don't follow the new Hasidish customs. Um, and the Khatam Sofer, um, who spends much of his life polemicizing against the reform, also wants an identity to coalesce around. So he makes the identity of non-reform Judaism the Jews who follow Shulchan Aruch and Ramah. So what, it's, what seems to happen is that in the few hundred years after Shulchan Aruch and Ramah are written, people slowly but surely accept it more and more. Um, and eventually there becomes this identity reason to accept Shulchan Aruch and Ramah um, that really solidifies its uh, centrality in the, the 18th century. Um, and, uh, and that continues um, following the, the authority of the Yehuda, and especially the Khatam Sofer, or Moshe Sofer, writing, um, writing the 18th century, um, and then into the, into the 19th. So that brings us to, uh, to this week. I will stop the share for a second and look at the comment, and then we will continue. Oh, those are just the sources. Okay, so let's go back to, to screen sharing. Okay, so that's wrapping up last week, but now let us move to, um, to, to the, the questions that we want to tackle this week. So with that as background, um, the question we have to ask is as follows. As we saw, there was a debate about who should follow the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. And there are all these disputes. Do you follow the Ramah if you live in Poland or Poland and Germany or everywhere in Eastern Europe? Or what exactly is the Ramah trying to do? But if we jump forward to the 20th century, there's a little bit of this before, but let's focus on the 20th and then again, and then even more so in the 21st. This question takes on a very different flavor because in the 16th century, when the Ramah is writing, for the most part, they're not exclusively, when someone says that the custom is to follow the Ramah in Poland, 
what they mean is Jews actually living in Poland follow Ramosha Israelis. And Jews actually living in Israel, let's say, follow Rabbi Yosef Karo. But in the 20th century, when we say that I'm an Ashkenazi and therefore I follow the Ramah, to whatever extent I follow the Ramah, or I say I'm Svardi and therefore I follow Rabbi Yosef Karo, or I'm Taimani and I follow the Benish Chai, right? I'm Yemenite, so I follow the I follow Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the Benish Chai, or whatever I say. Um, that doesn't seem to be the same type of thing that people were talking about four or five hundred years ago, because we're no longer talking about following the Ramah in a given loca location. We're talking about following um, the halachic rulings that my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather followed because he lived in wherever, right? Because he lived in Poland, because he lived in Lithuania, because he lived in Galicia. But like in my family, I've been in America for a century. I'm not anymore, now I live in Israel. But, but my father's family, we're, we've been in America for over a hundred years. So what does it mean already that I'm Ashkenazi? because my great-great-grandparents lived in a land that might have followed the Ramah, so what? Um, and the question that we really need to ask about halacha as we move into the 20th century and the 21st century is um, with the shakeup that happens between the rise of Zionism and the state of Israel and the Holocaust and the shakeup that brings Jews to Israel and North America, and then you know those being the two major centers of world Jewry, and then obviously significant pockets throughout the world. But very few of those people have been there for hundreds of years. What do we do? How do we define ourselves? How do we define our community? How do we define the halachic authorities that we follow? Um, how does anything we talked about last week relate to a world in which we no longer live in those original places where these halachic acceptances took place. Instead, right, we define ourselves by our family. Um, so the question we have to ask is, is that right? Does this make sense halachically? Is it really true that just like the people of Poland could be bound to remote Israelis, whatever that means, that we, the descendants of Polish Jewry or Russian Jewry or Lithuanian Jewry or Svardi Jewry or Eduda or whatever, living in Israel or America or Canada or Great Britain or France or Australia or South Africa are still bound to what our great-great-great-grandparents would have felt themselves bound to. So this is the question that I want to deal with. Um, the sources for this week and next week are together. So don't get scared by the 11 pages. I mean, still a lot, but I put everything together so that we can decide how we break it up based on on how uh, conversations go and the like. So let's try to figure this out. So again, as we've seen, this notion of geography was really important, was really, really important um, to the post-skim and to the communities living in the 16th century. But why is that the case, right? Why did they care whether the Ramah meant to write what he write, wrote for Poland or for Poland and Germany? Why is geography so important? And what does that tell us about a world in which we've essentially replaced geography for ethnicity, right? Or 
the geography of our grandparents, right? But essentially, Eida in Hebrew, right? I don't know if there's a good ethnicity is the closest I can think of, but Jew, Jewish sub ethnicity, maybe. I see a question. So I'll take the question before I wait. Question. Uh, wait, what happened? There was, oh, there we go. The question was. Rushlomo um, Gansfried's Kitzel Shulchan Arach is more based on the Ramah, it's more Ashkenazi, um, but, but it is different. It has certain Kabbalah involved, and um, it's, it's more the Hungarian side. Um, okay, so where does this notion of geography come from? So it comes from the, the, the Gemara here in number one. The fourth parak of Psachim tells us that Hamhalech mi makom shosin la makom shein there were different customs as to whether people should work on Erev Pesach, on the day before Pesach. And the Mishnah tells you that if you travel from a place where the custom was to work to a place where the custom was not to work, so you don't work in the new place. And if you come from a place where you don't work and you go to a place where they do work, you still shouldn't work you should take the stringencies of both places, of both the places where you're from and where you end up with. The majority view, though it's not unanimous, but the majority view in, in the halachic authorities is that this Mishnah refers specifically to people who are traveling temporarily. But if you move permanently, so then you can assimilate into the halachic culture of the place you move into, both for leniencies and for stringencies. Then the Gemara tells a story. B'nai Beishan Nahug Delohavi Azlin Mitsur Litzidon B'ma'alei Shabbat. The B'nai Beishan, which I'll leave untranslated for just a second, had the custom to not travel from Tzor to Tzidon on Friday. So what does that mean? So the halacha is you can't embark on long journeys on Friday because you might end up violating Shabbat if you get stuck and you're in a dangerous situation. And even though a dangerous situation will override Shabbat, we don't we don't um, bring that situation onto ourselves. Plus, it stresses out all types of reasons. It stresses out on Erev Shabbat, but very short trips, like your commute to work or something, 15, 20-minute, half-hour drive, let's say, I'm being generous. I know people's commutes are probably longer, but whatever the case may be, technically you're allowed to travel on Friday a short distance. So the Bnei Deshan said they had a custom to not travel even short distances on Friday. Their children came to Rabbi Yochanan and Amrulo, and they said to him, Avatain Efsharlu, our parents we're capable of keeping this custom. Anan lo eshalon, we, we can't handle it. Are we allowed to break the custom and travel on Friday for short distances? Amr lehu, he answered, kvar kiblu avotechem aleihem. Your parents have already accepted it. Shneamar shema b'ni musar avicha valtitosh doradimecha. And in Mishle it says, Listen, my son, to the instruction of your father and do not leave the Torah of your mother. And we therefore see that your parents' customs are binding. 
The million dollar question is who are the B'nai Beishan and who are their parents? Because in Hebrew, B'nai can mean one of two things. B'nai Beishan can either mean people who live in the city of Beishan or Bashan, or it can mean the children of a person named Bashan. If it means the, per, the people of the city of Bashan, so then this Gemara only proves that customs are binding on certain, on certain geographies, on certain groups within a city. And the children of them are the people who still live in that city. They just don't want to keep the customs of the previous generation. But the implication would be that were the people from Beishan to move to Tiveria or move to Yerushalayim or move to America, they would not have to keep the customs of their parents because customs are geographically based, not ancestrally based. If, however, B'nai Beishan means the children of the person named Bashan, so then the paradigmatic category of binding customs is not going to be geography, but is going to be family and ethnicity. Therefore, jumping forward to the 20th century, if, as we saw, the custom in Poland was to follow the Rama, and you are a descendant of people who lived in Poland, so if you think that the primary category of halachic binding, halachically binding customs and acceptances are geographic. So then, since you have now moved to America, you are no longer a Polish Jew. You are no longer bound by the acceptance of Poland for the Ramah, even if you think that was an absolute acceptance. But if you think that parental minhagim are binding, then maybe the fact that you are the great-great-grandchild of a community that accepted the Ramosha Israelis when they lived in Poland would be enough to bind you to that tradition. So the minority view is that Bashan was a person and therefore familial customs are binding. This position is taken by the Ravid. Rav Avram Aposkiers, writing in Provence slightly before the Rambam, even though people think of him as primarily a, uh, a disputant of the Rambam, it's not really true that he did at the end of his life. Um, before that, he had a career as the major rabbinic figure in Provence. Um, he writes, Said if they accept it on themselves, the, the sons can change it. Um, if the parents only accepted it on themselves, but the implication, if the parents accepted it even for their children, then the children have to follow it. And it's even more explicitly in the Pre-Toar, um, which is a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch written by the author of the Orachayim, which is better known, the commentary on the Torah. And he writes, Ula olam b'nei b'shan, b'nei mishpachat b'shan 
This Gemara tells you that the primary customs are familial. Are familial. However, there's a very big problem with reading this. And that is because the Gemara in Chulin tells the following story. Amar Marukva. Marukva says, In this regard, I am like vinegar, the son of wine, compared to my father. The Ilu Abba, because my father, right? We think that it, you know, it's a long time if you have the custom to wait six hours from meat to milk. We know that some people have the custom one hour, some have three, some have five, some have six. But Marukva said his father waited 24 hours. If he ate meat, he wouldn't eat for 24 hours. But I, in the same meal, I don't eat them. I just wait between meals. That's it. I bench and I can eat again. Let's assume that's what he means. But whatever it means, he doesn't wait 24 hours. Shmuel says a similar thing about his father. So here, you have a clear indication that a son is not accepting the family minhag. So why would that be the case? So the majority view seems to be because family minhagim, family customs are not binding. When the people of Bashan were a city, and geographic customs are binding. So, if, for example, if you look at the Rivash in number five, writing North Africa in the 13th century, I believe, maybe 14th, he writes, The people of a city are allowed to decree something for themselves and for the future generations in their cities. The Chavot Yoyer, Viar Bachrach, and his commentary, and his response, and it's brought in the Pinchei Tshuva, writes, The reason that in Bashan they had to follow the custom was because of the place, the geography. Similarly, the Prichadash in 8, Shanaya hi de Bashan, eno shem ish, ela shem makom, dahainu Bashan. The people of Bashan aren't the children of Bashan. It is the people from Bashan, the place, Bashan. And the majority view is exactly as I just said, that customs are not based on family. They're based on geography. The people who want to defend the notion that custom is based on family how do they explain the Gemara in Chulin, which says that Marukva did not accept the 24-hour waiting period between meat and milk that his father had? So um, the way that it's generally defended is that there's a difference between a custom that a parent accepts on themselves with no intention of it becoming the family custom, in which case everybody agrees it's not binding, and a case in which a parent accepts a custom intending it to become the family custom. And if that's the case, so then it might be binding. So with that as background, so now we got to ask the question. We saw the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, 
people living in Poland and Russia and Germany are arguing about whether they've accepted the Ramah. Eventually, they all accept the Ramah. People living in wherever, Israel, let's say, followed Rabbi Yosef Karo. 20th century, the world is shaken up between the Holocaust and the rise of the state of Israel. And now most of, Ameri most of world Jewry does not live where their great-great-great-grandparents live. That's just not the reality. They've moved on. And yet, and yet, most people have this, I, this notion that they are Ashkenazim because their great-grandparents came from somewhere that identified as Ashkenazi and followed Ramosha Israelis, or as Svaradim, or as whatever. And that affects the halacha they follow, the customs they have. But how is that legitimate? Or not how is that legitimate? Is that binding? Is that really the right halachic path? As we just saw, the majority view seems to be, both in the medieval period and in the modern period, that geographic customs are binding, not family customs. And if that's the case, well, we've moved on from those places. So why are we still stuck in the halachic paradigms set by our ancestors two, three, four, five hundred years ago in Poland and Germany and France and, uh, and Israel and wherever else you might come from? Why is it that the modern moment we seem to define ourselves with these categories of Ashkenazi, Sfardi, Teimani, Dunamizrach, Hasidish, Litvish, take your pick? Where does that come from? So, I'm going for the moment, going to skip over some of the sources in the middle. Some of the sources in the middle. Um, get to a question that I'll come back, maybe I'll come back to briefly, which is um, whatever it exactly the force is of this minagamakum or minagavot, can you nullify them with hatarat nidarim, right? With the nullification of vows, or do they take on a unique status? I'll leave that on the side for a minute. But how do we deal with the modern moment? So, oh, I have a question. So let me see what this question is. Okay, see. Um, what does mean not a follow? We'll 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 come back to that question. Is is the implications for modern times? So let's so let's let's see what it is. So, possibility one, model one is to reject what I just said. Is to say, look. I claim the majority view is that the primary category in halacha is geography, not family. But maybe that's not true. Maybe the fact that we all treat ourselves like Ashkenazim or Svaradim proves that as uh, the Jewish people has accepted or it reflects that we've accepted the position of the Ravid and the Pritoar that the primary category is familial. And if it's familial, so if our great-great-grandparents accepted Ramosha Israelis or Rabbi Yosef Karo, then so should we. This is the direction taken by Rabbi Yosef Shalom Eliashev, the leader of the Haredi world until he passed away just a few years ago, in his comments on Psachim, where he writes, 
וגם יחיד שקיבל על עצמו הנהגה טובה, טוב, הרי זה מחייב את זרעו. If you accept a practice on yourself, your children are obligated it. תכתיב על ציטוש תורני מך, אלא שכל אחד הנה צריך לברר כל הנהגות אביב לנהוג כמותו, רק מה שקיבל גם על זרוע חרא. But as we qualified it before, you only have to accept the customs that your parents meant to be binding on the family. But if the family meant this to be a family custom, then you must follow them. So model one to explain the modern moment is to say that, no, we really paskin like the rivet. The main category in halacha is familial, not geographic. And therefore, if for all the reasons we discussed last week in the beginning of today, our great, 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 great grandparents accepted Ramosha Isolis, so, so should we. And if they accepted Rosef Karo and the Shulchan Aruch, then so should we. And that's it. Again, we'll come back to why and exactly the mechanism, but today we're going to explain how we got to this point. That's model one. But as I said, that's not a great model because it's a minority view. Right? That's the minority view in the end of the day. Most authorities, both Rishonim and Achronim, both medieval and modern commentaries, felt that the primary category in custom and also in halachic um, authority is geographic, not familial. So again, even if it's true that three, 400 years ago, everybody accepted the Shulchan Aruch, everyone accepted Moshe Israelis, everyone accepted whatever, once we've moved to Israel or once we move to America, who cares? We start fresh or we follow the customs that were existent in Israel when we got here or in America when we got here, but we don't follow our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents' customs because we're in a new place. So we get new customs. And in fact, this was, I didn't put this on the source sheet because it was already long, but this was a big, big dispute in New York because New York, the original Jewish community in New York was Spanish Portuguese. Right, the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue is the oldest shul in New York, and it is, it is the, you know, whatever, the I forget the exact relationship, the partner shul, child shul, whatever shul of the Toro synagogue. And when Ashkenazi Jews started moving into New York, at some point they wanted their own shochdim and their own rabbis and their own customs, and this was disputed because the Spanish-Portuguese community felt that, what do you mean? We were here first. We set up the custom. Who are you to try to bring your identity here? The rule is when you move here, you follow the customs of the place. And this place follows Spanish-Portuguese customs. What you're doing is illegitimate. So what do we do? So again, model one is accept the familial model against the geographic model. But as I said, that's a minority view. So model two is, is suggested by Rib Vosner. Yes, I see a question, Chaya. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. 
high. Isn't that a little bit inherently, like, isn't that paradoxical if they're saying, wait, it goes by the place, but the place isn't Spain or Portugal. They got that from their ancestors. Okay, good. So, yeah, I, I was hoping someone wouldn't catch, well, I'm glad you caught me on it. So <laughs> there is a middle group, um, which for our purposes doesn't matter so much, but I'll, but, but for, for your question very much does. Um, there is a position that um, you can transfer a community if you transfer it in its total, or if you transfer a community into a place with no Jews. So then you might be able to recreate a community. But once the community is set up, so then a second identity group that moved in would, would not be able to, um, to set up a second identity. Right? They would have to become part of the first one. Right, So there is this idea that even if it's geographic, if a large group of people are moving into a place with no custom whatsoever, so then they can bring their customs with them because they're not going against the local custom. They're just transplanting the geography as it were. Right, They're making New York a, you know, Spain or Portugal. Um, but once that's happened, they have defined the place by the new their customs, and no one else would be able to come into their turf and um, and bring a secondary identity, right? That's basically the logic that's going on there. Um, it's sort of a it's an interesting model. It it only is a, it's only applicable when people move to a totally new place, right? So if it isn't a new place, that model doesn't apply. But you're right, right? In that particular moment, there is a greater acceptance that when you move to a place with no custom, you can bring your customs with you and reestablish your community. Um, 100% correct. Okay. So Rubosner, 20th century into the 21st, I think starting in the 19th, in the 19th but I forget exactly. Uh, I mean, not totally clear. He lived like 100 until he was like 104 or something. So like he was born somewhere around the turn of the 20th century, I think after, but maybe, I think after. Be very beginning of the 20th century. Um, so he says as follows. It is clear to me. Even if an Ashkenazi is in a totally Sephardic community. Or a Sephardic city. And Ashkenazim don't even have a shul. Um, the age was a mishum loted go to do. Um, vechain lehefech. So he said, in that case, I would say, you know, you probably have to follow the local community because you're an outlier and then it's going to create fights. But aval beir Belograd, shesvaradim yoshim sham mishanim kadmoniot, vav shabolu sham ashkenazim. But if there were Svaradim. And then an Ashkenazi community moved in. So then, then you can create two sub-identities in the city. Why? Didn't we say... Right, he said, etc. Don't we already say that we don't follow our um, 
right? Our parents, rather we follow geographies. He says, that's true. Aval davar shekibel al shevet shalem bechal Yisrael. He said, there's a middle category. There's family, which is not binding. There's geography, which is super binding. And then there is what he calls minag hashevet, tribal customs. Kimo like the Sephardi customs and the Sephardi halachic practices that follow Rabbi Yosef Karo or whoever they follow. <coughs> which they follow their ancestors for hundreds of years. And Ashkenazim will follow the Ramah for hundreds of years. That doesn't need a new acceptance. Because since you emerge from a tribe, you follow your ancestors. So model two from Ravosner is to say, listen, you're right. If your parents have a custom, you don't have to follow your parents' custom if you don't want to. If you accept it yourself or you practice it yourself, obviously you do, but that's because you accepted it. But simply because your parents accepted it is not enough to make it binding on you. But there's a different category. The reason we follow Ashkenazi practice is not because our parents were Ashkenazi, but because there's this idea of a tribe or what I would call right, a sub-ethnicity. Right? Ethnic minhagim exist. Family minhagim are nice but they're not binding unless you want them to be binding. You want to accept it, that's fine. You don't want to, that's also fine. But geographic minhagim, geographic customs are binding and ethnic minhagim are binding. So therefore the way he sees the modern moment is that it's true. You don't have to follow your parents' customs, but if it's not your parents' personal practice, but it's because you identify with the world of Ashkenaz. Because that's what your parents did and your grandparents did and your community does and they always did. That is binding. And therefore, even in Ashkenazi, right, a Polish Jew who moves to New York would follow the Polish Menagim if he moves with enough people and a community and sets up a shul and they follow, right? You move to Washington Heights and they have the German Menagim in all the different... German shuls there, right? So you have, you have an identity, not just as an individual, not as a family, but as a tribe, as it were. And that, he says, is binding, which is why Ashkenazim, the descendants of Polish Jewry, will follow Ramosha Israelis, even if they live in Israel and even if they live in New York. And the same with, quote unquote, Svartim. I don't want to get into, I will bracket, I, I can't get into, though it's fascinating, the question of, how did all non-Ashkenazim become defined as Sephardim, which Moroccans and, um, and Yemenites and Egyptians will all tell you that's not true. We all have different customs. Um, Rabbi Dr. Benny Lau deals with that in his book, Mimaran Admaran, Mishnatoa El Chatichel Maran Ovadi Yosef, where that was really one of the contributions of Rav Ovadi Yosef, where he was trying to unify 
non-Ashkenazi Jewry um, to solidify their halachic weight against the Ashkenazi rabbinic hegemony in, in Israel in the 50s. Um, so that's a fascinating story, which unfortunately we will not get to today. Um, so for the moment, I'm not going to get into those details. But that's model two. Model two of how we get to the modern moment is that even though we've all shifted and moved to new countries, since we moved and created sub-communities, we are, we are tribally linked to our parents and grandparents and our ancestors. And if they accepted Ramosha Israelis and Ashkenazi Psak, then so did we. And if, we, if they accepted Svardi Psak and Rios of Karo, then so did we. That's possibility two. Possibility three, which we already saw for just a second, which was hinted at 500 years ago in, um, in the Chuvot Re'em of um, Rav Elio Mizrahi, writing about the customs in Constantinople, but as far as I can tell, was not given much weight in halachic, it was barely discussed in halachic writings after that for the next 500 years. Uh, and even the article we're going to look at in just a second, it's not discussed at all. Um, but the, the idea is, but the source is not quoted, um, is an idea presented by Rabbi Lamb. So Rabbi Lamb, which I'm sure many of you probably knew him personally, um, Rabbi Lamb, who was the, the former president of Yeshiva University, uh, and before that, obviously, was a celebrated rabbi in the Upper West Side, um, was, was asked the following question. He, he was writing about a very minor custom about Kriyat Shem, Al Shem Adam Chai, the, the question of whether you can name after someone who's alive. And in general, people know Ashkenazim for some reason don't, and Svardim do. That's right, that's just what happens. So, in an article he was writing, he dealt with this question Can an Ashkenazi choose to name after a living relative? So he wrote an article about it, and someone responded and wrote an article back to Rabbi Lamb. And he says, if I'm understanding what you wrote correctly, you write that an Ashkenazi is not bound by this custom because you quote the Chavot Yair that the main category of customs are geographic, not familial. So then so this person wrote a letter to him and he says, Harav Art, Hesigalai, I don't know who that is. If I'm right, whenever there's an Ashkenazi Svardi dispute, Nomar, we should say, if we happen to live in a place which has more than one custom, like New York or Israel or pretty much anywhere, batel tokef minhagenu mikidmadina, the strength of the custom is gone. The imkeni yemutar levene Ashkenaz lachol chidiyot bepesach. God forbid that means that Ashkenazim could have rice on Pesach and kidney out. God forbid you can't be implying that. Right? No one ever heard that an Ashkenazi could, fought, could eat kidney out on Pesach. 
So Raylam writes back to him and he says, thank you for your response. But let me just note, let me just focus on your main problem. If geography is the main category, when I claimed that if Ashkenazim don't live in Poland anymore, then we're not bound by their minhagim, and therefore the custom is gone. Then in America, we are no longer Ashkenazim. We're no longer Svardim. We don't have our old customs. We follow whatever we want, including, God forbid, Kidney on Pesach. So Rabbi Lamb says, You're right. Good point. But your claim is not against me. That's what comes out of this tradition of Psach that only geography matters and not family. The low rock alav, not just him. But also the Rivash, the Alaran. And everybody, because that was the majority view. And he says, so now you're going to tell me, does that mean we're not Ashkenazim? He says, so what about us now, 20th, 21st century? So then you're right. You got to ask the question. Why do we accept the customs? Because we're in a unique situation. Because we live in America. Because the entire world moved to America, to Israel, to whatever. Instead of creating one big community, we remain subgroups. A little here, a little there. We kept our customs and we didn't assimilate into one community or even in each city. We didn't take on um one custom ubarusha mitun americaid he kaksha ain lira ot barim shlanem say hadarushlam sheikh masart kilati which means in our american cities there's no reason for us to follow these customs so he says licha ora but look all men again shemeazu mitamid you're right the easiest logical approach is that this is gone Whatever was true 500 years ago and 300 years ago and 200 years ago is not true anymore. You move to America, you move to Israel, you are no longer an Ashkenazi, you are no longer a Svaradi, you are an American, you are an Israeli. And with that, you lose all of your customs. You are not bound to anything anymore. Not your customs, not your halachic traditions. Um, yes. You're right. Maybe we are not bound by customs as Ashkenazim. Maybe. But Rabbi Lamb notes that that's a radical statement that doesn't seem to be how Jews actually live. So Rabbi Lamb comes up with a radical solution. And he says, I'll share all came. So it seems to me, I want to suggest 
Since you can't, you can't really talk about cities with customs in America. Our identity is wrapped up with our shul, our schools, our Hasidish group. On what basis? Because in the Gemara, there's such a thing as a guild. If you wanted to be part of the Carpenter's Guild, that had legal consequences in the Gemara. What's the difference? A city is a city, is a place. And a guild by definition. And I'll read his English because it's not mine. Voluntary association. So he says, you know what? You're right. Fundamentally, we don't have to be Ashkenazim. But maybe we're allowed to be. We're allowed to accept these identities. And once we accept that identity voluntarily, it carries with it all the customs and all the halachic background that Jews in Poland may have felt by calling themselves an Ashkenazi. Now, if he's right, so on the one hand, it explains the modern moment, but it leaves open a huge question, which is, um, but what if I don't want to? So you're telling me I can, but what if I don't want to? What if I decide I don't want to be Ashkenazi, I want to be Sparty, right? I like Middle, Middle Eastern culture, halachic culture better, right? I want to be a Temani from here on in. I'm not going to be an opportunist. I'm not going to look for leniencies and everything. I'm going to buy wholesale a new community, right? A new identity. So according to Rabbi Lamb, what should come out is that's fine, right? That's fine. You take a, you're allowed to take an identity with all that comes with it, but you're not bound to it because it's voluntary. So here we have three, really four, right? Really four models of how to deal with the modern moment. One is to, is to say the real driving force between custom and what type of halacha you follow has been and always will be family. And therefore, whatever we established was the custom and the halachic practice of Jews in Poland who followed the Ramah. However you got to that point, if your great-great-grandfather did it, then you got to do it too. And that's why we still act as Ashkenazim and Sfardim. That is Rebel Yashiv. Model two. No, family customs, you're right. They are not binding. But if you're part of an Eidav, a tribe, the Ashkenazi tribe, so then it is binding. Rebuzner. Rabbi Lamb, maybe we should look at this more as voluntary association. You don't necessarily have to, 
But we do, realistically. And I remember I once gave this year in Toronto, and everyone was like, oh, so we can eat kidney oat. I said to them, look, if you follow Rabbi Lamb's position, then what I have to ask you is the following. You can, if you want, switch and have kidney oat on Pesach, even if you're Ashkenazi. But in order to do that, you have to give up in your entire identity as an Ashkenazi and take a different identity, meaning you can't do it piecemeal, right? If Rabbi Lamb is right, so we create these subcommunities modeled on the geographies that used to exist and the customs that existed in Poland, but you have to take on an identity. You can't just take a little from this and a little from that. You have to take it on an identity. So if you want to give up on everything that's Ashkenazi and you want to become Temani, be my guest. But you can't take a little from here and a little from there. That you can't do. That's model three. Model four is what Rabbi Lamb said at the beginning, which is maybe this is right, but maybe it's wrong. Meaning maybe, and this is a radical thing to say, but it's not impossible halachically. Maybe the 20th century notion that we are Ashkenazim or Svardim because of our great-great-great-grandparents is just wrong. And maybe the right halachic move would have been to start from zero. Maybe that was the right halachic move. Maybe that is the right halachic move. And maybe this notion that we are still Ashkenazi or Svardi is just wrong. It's just wrong. And the modern moment is in many ways mistaken. Now, no one has gone this far to the best of my knowledge, but uh, for reasons that we'll talk about next week, um, in Israel, Mm, on the margins, you start to see postim who are talking this way and are doing their best to minimize the differences between Ashkenazim and Sephardim, partially because it really actually it's really actually hard to justify the main the main right maintaining these strict tribal identities once they've been alienated from the geographic anchor that originally created them. So. I see I have two minutes, so let me just summarize and, and, and highlight where we're going next week. So what we did in the first 10 minutes was show how slowly but surely, because of acceptance and the belief that the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch were, were, were right, plus a series of uh, social shakeups and, re and reactionary movements, eventually the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch became accepted. But then the question is, so what about our moment? How do we deal with... What, how do we relate to their acceptance? If that was true 500 years ago, what about us? So here what we saw is that one model is to say the paradigmatic custom and halachic acceptance, and I'm blurring them, though next week I'll, I'll distinguish between them, is family custom. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that in America and Israel, we've continued those acceptances. But the other extreme is to say, no, that's a mistake. We should start over. And in the middle, you have this idea that, no, family customs may not be binding, but tribal customs are. And that's why we're bound to Ashkenazi Minhagim and the like. Or a Bailam suggestion, which is you can voluntarily take on an identity. And de facto, most of us have. And if you have, you take it as it was accepted in the place upon which you model your identity. 
if you want to take a different identity, that's fine. But we, but you choose an identity in its totality. The questions we have to deal with next week are, okay, one, and I'm going to deal with the two questions next week. One is, is it ideal to maintain different customs? Meaning we've said that we do, we've tried to justify why, but is it right? What I call the melting pot or mosaic question, right? Meaning is this reality of the mosaic really ideal or would the better halachic conclusion be to erase our Ashkenazi Svarti identity and move to the melting pot? That's question one. And the second question I wanna deal with, and that question I'm only gonna deal with briefly because I know that um, Rabbi Dr. Hittery dealt with it in the context of Uziel. The second point I wanna deal with is um, related to the geography question we talked about now is seeing that geography clearly is the central model that drove halachic discourse, not just in customs, but what we'll see next week in halachic authority also, how does that, is that affected by a world in which mass communication makes it that I'm probably closer to my teacher from my school in Israel than from my parents' shul, you know, from my parents' rabbi at shul. Let, let's say you're talking with a 20-year-old or something like that. How does that shift um, not just customs, but also um, which halachic authorities I turn to? That's what we're going to talk about next week, um, and that will be the end of the series. Um, I'll take the last questions. As usual, I'll stick around for questions, but... We are formally done. So anyone who wants to leave, feel free. And I will see you hopefully next week. Um, let us, let me look at the questions that I have here in the chat. Um, okay. Um, isn't that what Rabbi Lamb says converts have to do to take on an identity? I'm not sure. Um, he might, I, I'm, I'm not aware. Uh, it would make sense. I, I, I just am not familiar enough with uh, with his halakhic writings and that but judy you might you might be right that converts are should take on an identity um wouldn't taking a little here and little there create your, your new identity yes and that's what we'll talk about a little bit next week is maybe that is the right thing meaning until now we've assumed that maybe that's the wrong thing you should take on an identity um com completely but when we deal with the mosaic um what again the mosaic melting pot question um i'll deal with the question next week of well, you're right. Meaning, if you think that halachically we don't have to be Ashkenazim and Svardim, well, what's wrong with just saying we'll take on a new identity? Maybe that's the right thing to do. Um, and we'll see. That is actually Ravuziel's position. And that's what he did. Meaning, Ravuziel was a bit of an outlier in, in the sense that he really did try to eliminate um, as much as he could the differences between Ashkenazim and Svardim um, and create a new Israeli identity, um, which, even though he didn't spell it out the way we're spelling it out now, I assume part of what drove him is what we're talking about now, is that there's no good reason for us to be Ashkenazi or Svardi. If we move to Israel, we're, we're Israeli. Um, but that's what we'll kick off with uh, with next week briefly um, and deal with the question of Moradatra in a globalized world. Those are the two questions that I left for the last session. Chaya, I see you're raising your hand, I think, unless it was from the same from before. No, 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 it's a new one. Um, okay. I was wondering, um, specifically, in terms of what you said, Rev. Vosner said, but also just in general, um, with a few of these opinions, how much of that do you think is reflecting like a sociological fact, and how much of that do you think is like an actual halachic opinion? Um, because so Rabbi like, Lamb is definitely to... sociological, right? Meaning he's reflecting what people do, right? Rather, right? That's yeah. for sure. 
Um, More like I assume, yeah. I assume that you're right. Meaning I assume that in the Haredi community, these tribal identities are very strong, right? Um, and therefore the line between sociology and halacha, between descriptive and prescriptive is hard to draw. Like, I'm not sure the answer. I think the fact that it's unclear is really the point, right? Meaning it's, you know, what we'll see next week is that in the religious Zionist community, this is less true um, because the, the identities are less strong because of uh, this, I, you know, this emphasis on the state of Israel of being kibbutz goliot, right? They, they see in the descriptive melting pot a prescriptive model, right? But the Haredi model, which... Sorry. Um, but the Haredi model, I think you're right. You know, the fact that they live more, right? They don't view Israel, let's say, or the state of Israel as an ideal means they're less likely to see this as a, sh a historical shift. And therefore, they're going to stick to sociological models that they knew, right, before, right? I mean, I think that they overlap. So I'm not sure how much is descriptive or prescriptive, and I'm not sure that there's a difference for him, right? I'm, I, you know, it could be that they feed into each other. So I don't know which came first, but I think drawing the line between them is going to be quite hard. Um, yeah, I, that's what I think. I, but I, I think, you know, I, I think the question is right. I think the answer is a little bit of both, mm -hmm. I think. Because I can't really um, imagine him being like, you're right, never mind. Everyone in New York is Sparty now or Sparty and Ashkenazi aren't a thing. And everyone being like, okay, Sparty and Ashkenazi aren't a thing because like of identity politics. Like I can't- Yeah, so there's the really negative fine. parts of that too, right? Meaning there's the, there's the, Right, the neutral thing, which as I just said, is that they they care very much about it, um, but there is a little bit of they care about it because it's become political and it's become identity, li literally identity politics. Meaning, you know, not like identity politics in you know Jews should vote for this party, but like no, that's not what I meant. There I is meant a Haredi Sfardi party, right? right? Called Shas. Oh. There is right. a right Hasidish party. And a Litvish party, right? A Haredi, right? So it's it's literally politics. So the 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 wrapping up of politics and identity in Israel, especially in the Haredi world, right? There is no there is no religious Zionist Ashkenazi party, right? There, there's barely right, and and many religious Zionists don't vote for religious parties at all. They vote for right Likud, or they vote for Labor, or they vote for right, left-wing parties or right-wing parties on economic issues or social issues. But in the Haredi world, it's very political because even the, the, the parties in Knesset are defined as Haredi Svardi, right, and Ashkenat, right? So yes, I, meant I even think in there's the, a lot going into it. I meant even not in the Haredi world, just because people, I think, throughout the Jewish world, like, identify as Ashkenazi, and if you told them, or as Svardi, and if you told them that what <laughs> that was a meaningless thing, they wouldn't, like, I, that's what I meant by like people's identity. Right. So, and so, so I guess, oh, so, so like I said, in the religious Zionist community, I think that's what we're going to kick off with next week is some people, yes, and some people are like, no, I'm not an Ashkenazi, I'm an Israeli, yeah. right? There's a bit more in the Haredi world, not so much, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then and I imagine it'll take a in North America. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in North America, it's still true, but because of the power of living in a Jewish state, sociologically speaking, Right, is that people don't feel like they need to be Ashkenazi. They're just right, because part of their Jewish identity comes from the air, right? It's just right. And that does that does change the way people think about it. 
Um, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit next week, but I, I think that's why you see a little bit more movement in this regard in the in the religious Zionist community than you do in the Haredi community. Um, and again, if you read the the book that I mentioned from from uh, from Benny Lau, you'll see that for Bavadi Yosef, um, for example, creating Sephardi identity for him was accomplished both by trying to get all Sephardim to Paskin like Shulchan Aruch, and by creating Shas as a political party. So, right, the the halachic level and the literal political level, right? I I understood what you meant by identity politics, but in Israel, this is a different level of identity politics. It's literal politics, meaning Rubavadia felt that to create Svarti identity, he both needed to create a political identity and a religious identity and meld them, right? And like, if you drive down, like today when I drove home from work on Begin, right? The big ad, because we have elections for the I can't even, I don't even remember what number we're on, four or five. I have no idea what we're on anymore, right? But the big Shas ad is a picture of um, oh, yeah. Deri, Nexer Bovadia, which says, right? It, it's Misoret, right? It's, right, Misora Me'avotenu, right? Our tradition from our fathers, right? Lahagen um, al-Chalashim, I think, right? To protect the weak, right? So it's like, I'm, I'm, Right, we're a party that goes for the disenfranchised, but because that's the tradition we got from Ravadia Yosef, right? And there's this total weird mix of politics and religion that feeds into that identity um, in in very difficult ways to understand. Um, but yeah, I think America and Israel are different in this in, in this regard um, because it's not wrapped up. Because look. In America, people believe in religion, in separation of church and state. Um, in Israel, there is no separation of church and state. So, you know, that, you know, there just isn't, right? Meaning the Rabbanut controls marriage. There, there, is, there is no such thing as separation of church and state. So, I, so religious identity and political identity feed into each other, um, which creates, you know, a, a, a loop that strengthens both of them. Um, yeah, I, I, you know. Thank you. Oh, yay. Israeli election season. We have to think about, it's amazing I have to think about that even when I'm talking about Shulchan Aruch. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, any more questions? And like I said, as I, I'm happy that so far a week has not gone by where people have, have uh, fit, right? No, not a week has gone by where someone hasn't emailed me in between Shurim. So I'm glad you actually all believe me that you can follow up. So really, you can, you can call me, you can email me. Um, but if you have more questions, I'm still here. But, um, but, but keep them coming, right? They're all good questions. And I'm, I, I, I really do appreciate it. Um, but if that's it for the night, then I guess we will call it. Evie, is that it? Are we calling it for tonight? Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so okay. much. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Ziering. Uh, and thank you everyone else who joined us today for this uh, fifth class in the series. I'm looking forward to next week, which will, I believe will be our um, um, final class. Final right? week. Uh, yeah. And thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you to everyone who also joined us on Drisha Live and on Facebook, just uh, watching us. Uh, we continue our spring program tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m. with the first uh, sorry, it's not the first class, it is the third class in the series uh, on the world of uh, doubt between human and divine, between law and reality with Rabbi Nityel Shimoni. So that will be the third class in that series. And in addition, we have many more classes happening right now as always. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website, 
at www.drisha.org slash classes, or you can watch live at www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again, uh, Rabbi Zering. I'm looking forward to uh, next week. And uh, thank you for always uh, taking time to answer everyone's questions. Uh, okay, thank you so much, Evie. Yeah, and to everyone who attended, uh, thanks again. And we hope to see you at another class here, um, upcoming classes at Drisha. Thank you so much.